It's hard to argue that the last two weeks were particularly positive for Governor Eric Greitens. His already wobbly attempt to stay in office was rocked by a bombshell House report on his conduct and another felony charge for computer data tampering. But it's fair to say that this past week was less bad for the governor. A key figure in his felony invasion of privacy trial invoked his constitutional right not to incriminate himself, which may affect what type of evidence gets heard at trial. And attorney Al Watkins provided Greitens fans with another gift, the disclosure that his firm received $100,000 in cash to deal with fallout from the revelation of Greitens' extramarital affair. It was clear that there was no desire to, the, on the part of whomever the donor was, whomever the, the gifter was. Um, so you don't actually to, know who it name. was? I have no idea. Even with rays of light on the legal front, dark clouds remain for Greitens, especially with the legislature considering impeachment. So on the latest edition of Politically Speaking, St. Louis Public Radio's Joe Manis and Rachel Lipman join me to round up all things Greitens in this past week. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I am your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Rachel Lippman. And... Colleague Joe Manis. It's part eight of As the Greitens World Turns, which is not the official name for this podcast. And we would probably take a poll on, of what this should be called, but it'd probably be called like Bodie McBoatface or something like which that. Which honestly would make the most sense given this this whole whatever you want to call it. But so, well, I still think it should be Fifty Shades of Politics nah. or something like that. I, I'm going to nah. veto that. <laughs> nah. Using using my veto to to veto that veto. Wait, can we override? <laughs> oh, I would would be two thirds, so that is possible. Yeah, so, it is. <laughs> so as I said in the introduction, the last two weeks were really bad. For Governor Eric Greitens, that the House report came out that painted him in a, a very, very bad light. Um, and then last week he was charged with felony computer data tampering. So not not good weeks for, for Greitens' ability to stay in office. This week, though, I would say it was less bad. Um, and it's primarily because of what happened on the legal front. And we're going to talk about that for the most part of the show today. But we're also going to continue to talk about the dark clouds ahead for the governor on the political front. So the first thing I want to talk about that happened in the courtroom actually happened yesterday on Thursday. And William Tisby, who was brought in by St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner to interview the woman Greitens had an affair with, as well as the woman's friend, who I think is only known as JW. Um, he was already in hot water because he apparently made false statements during a deposition, including that he said he didn't take notes, a video surfaced that where he clearly was taking notes, and one of the caveats that uh, St. Louis Circuit Judge Rex Burleson had for continuing the case was that witnesses, including Tisabee, had to be redeposed. So Tisabee shows up yesterday and he invokes his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, which is his right. I mean, you, you have the right to, to do that. What I think is going to happen next, though, is the defense is going to try to have everything that Tisabee touched thrown out, including the interview with the woman the interview with uh, the woman's friend, and pretty much everything that Tisby did, which I, I, I mean, I, again, as people know, not a lawyer, not, don't play one on the radio, but I can't imagine that would be good 
for Gardner's ability to convict Greitens. What do you, what do you think, Rachel? Well, I actually kind of talked about this with a defense attorney I was talking to about something else today. And what he said is like, yes, there is this sort of fruit of the poison tree thing that you hear about where if a search warrant is bad, then anything collected in the search warrant is also bad. What he wasn't sure of and what I don't think anyone is sure of right now in this case, and also not a lawyer, don't play one on the radio very often, is that can interviews really be considered evidence? Is it really evidence collection if you were just doing an interview with some with a, a victim in this case? I don't know. I don't know if if in interviews or in information that he gathered opened up other avenues of investigation, which could cut off that branch of the investigation. But the defense attorney that I talked to seemed to think that, no, there really isn't that much of an issue if all he is really doing is, is interviewing, unless it's coming in as evidence, and in which case, then yes, it is evidence collection and it becomes a problem. We're, but we're, it's certainly yeah. going to go to credibility again, credibility of which is sort of been central to the defense's case here is that nobody in this is is credible. And, and what I was about to say was, if, for example, the testimony of J.W. is not allowed to be admissible because Tisabee interviewed her, then you no longer have somebody corroborating the woman's story, I think. And I think that I think that becomes the significant aspect, at least from an observation. Well, standpoint. unless you have others who also have interviewed her or if other people are dispatched to interview her. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, although I spawned two of them. I yes. had to, I, I wanted to get them stuck in there. <laughs> but but I, I you at least have more than a tangential relationship too. And but but I think um I th- I mean I think though for the average person who's watching this, uh they just want to know sort of what's the what the truth is. And I think some of this back and forth and all this stuff just confuses people. And they're just like, get me to the bottom line here. Did the, does this picture exist? Did he take it without her permission? Those kind of things. And the argument that the prosecution has always advanced or related to these evidence issues and to Tisabee's credibility is that nothing that he has collected contradicts the core of the woman's story, that she was in the basement during their first encounter. He tied her up and took a semi-nude photo of her without her permission. Right. And... I will just say, though, that when I was in the court when Gardner suggested striking Tisabee from the case, and from what I remember, and we don't allow recording equipment in the court, so I'm going by memory here, that Burleson was basically like, are you sure you want to do that? Because if you do that, then you risk getting the woman's testimony and JW's testimony out. So I I think that's a a serious possibility now that Tisabee has taken the fifth and is not being particularly cooperative, which is his right. Um, but I think that that could be where this case is going. And if that does go that way, I, I just don't see it helping Gardner's ability to convict. Certainly doesn't help at all. And also the Fifth Amendment has just come up a lot in the context of pretty much everything this yeah, week, news-wise. In, in <laughs> Local, state, everywhere. national. Yeah. Are you, are you talking about a certain president's lawyer? And not, I, I don't follow national politics, so I don't really care. <laughs> um, I'm calling BS on that one. Well, yeah, you can. <laughs> I want to talk about something else that happened outside the courtroom that was pretty startling for, on a political perspective. And before we start talking about this, I do want to address some of the uh, commentary about Al Watkins' disclosure that $100,000 in cash came to his firm to deal with the fallout. 
uh, from the revelation of, of Greitens' uh, extramarital affair. Many of Greitens' detractors have correctly said that the governor has not been transparent in any way, shape, or form when it comes to his campaign finances, his inauguration, or at, for at least for now, his, his legal funds. No, no one is saying that that is absolved because of this $100,000 revelation. And Joe, I think, wanted to, to make that point pretty strong. Yes, I did, but you just stole my thunder. I, I stole the thunder. No one is making it's the, the host's prerogative. Yeah, no one is making the argument that $100,000 is just as important as millions of dollars, okay? The reason, though, the people of Missouri need to know where this $100,000 came from is basically what I asked Watkins in what has now become an infamous infamous clip that has spread throughout the internet like wildfire. I'm going to play and, it. And you may want to remove your children from the room. <laughs> Yeah. Can I can I can I ask me the question? The subject matter here is not for the faint of heart. The, the, the reason that we want to know this is if it's, if the people that paid you have a vested interest in seeing Greitens out of office and Parson replaced, oh, I, I think can... that the people of the Missouri deserve to know that. Well, Wouldn't you I agree? Think, I, I would I would not only agree, but I agree wholeheartedly. And if I was into tongue kissing men with glasses, I'd be tongue kissing you right now. I have ethical obligations, I have legal obligations. And I have obligations that, from day to day, require me to be very careful about what I disclose. Okay, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, Some of it I would rather ignore. Okay, let's ignore the the humorous quip about Al Watkins tongue-kissing me for a moment. Um, Again, I think my question is a valid one. And I know that there are a lot of people who dislike Greitens immensely that probably disagree that People need to know where Watkins got this money. But if it was a source that would benefit financially from Mike Parsons becoming governor, it doesn't it doesn't make uh, anything that Greitens is accused of go away. It does not excuse Greitens behavior before he entered office. But I mean, I want to know about it. And I think that people who are represented by our state government deserve to know about it, too. In the same way that we also would deserve to know, and again, this is an argument that everyone on this podcast has made, deserve to know if there are people who are have a reason for Greitens to stay in office over this, who are donating to his legal firm or who or his legal uh, funds or the 501c4 or whatever. Absolutely. The amounts aren't equivalent, but yes, the, the need for information absolutely is 100% equivalent. Well, this is this this just illustrates how politics influences policy and the average person may not be paying attention to all this political stuff, but it does affect parts of their lives. It affects, I mean, let's say just using the low-income housing industry just as an example, I mean, there are units in urban parts of the state, units in rural parts of the state that aren't being built because of the governor's decision. I'm not saying that's good or bad, I mean, to freeze the program. But what I'm saying is, is that this case, what happens to the governor will have an impact on that. I'm just using that as just one of a gazillion examples of how state policy could be affected 
whether or not uh, Eric Greitens stays in office. You've got the education issue. You have his nominees to the board. Are there people who are backing interests that were affected by Margie Van, Van Dieven's removal who might have an interest in the governor being ousted and Parson being named lieutenant governor? And the low-income housing tax credit issue is, 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 is something I directly asked Watkins. And this is the reason why. Watkins himself has said that a lot of media inquiries occurred in December of 2017, which happens to be the same month that Greitens froze state low-income housing tax credits. So this is the line of questioning I asked Watkins near the end of his press conference. Do you kind of see why that would arouse some suspicion given that the timelines match basically oh, yeah and I've, and I've got no first of all that may very well be the case I don't know right um, I can tell you that it was conditionless I can tell you that as an advocate for my client I have a duty and I have an obligation in this case for my clients um, I can't I can tell you that there was caution employed that there was sensitivity to the fact that this was something that I wanted to make sure was disclosed to federal authorities right away um, and that the appropriate uh, responsive action was, was taken. Uh, I can tell you that there was no tit for tat. Um, there was no, uh, there's no condition to the, uh, to the payment, and there was no designation of the beneficiary of that payment or beneficiaries of that payment um, or payments. And the decision that was made by my client was prior to, to disclose the recordings, was made prior to all of this, and the, the release of the recordings was made prior to all of this, and no initial inquiry or call was made until after that had been done, and after there had been an interview already concluded with the Post-Dispatch, and after the recordings had been given to KMO uh, KMOV. Watkins has said he doesn't know who brought $100,000 in cash to him. I mean, we are going to find out, though, because he's going to be deposed on Monday. And the question of, of who gave him this money is going to come up. I and would, I would imagine. And Burleson has already said that he has to answer the best way he can. I, I just also want to make clear that while I have done a lot of talking about who specifically was involved in possibly providing the third-party payment. I don't, I don't have any definitive evidence pointing to the low-income housing tax credit development community. I, I want to make that clear, even though I've talked to about 15 to 25 people on this subject. But also, the timeline, it's not that far after um, all this uh, chaos erupted as far as the state... Um, the school board. The, mm -hmm. the, the, the school state. board. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I've had some people speculate that it's actually a combination of a lot of different groups. Which very, very well might be true. But, and, and frankly, one thing that has happened um, during all this, is anybody talking about anything else in the governor's agenda? No. Anybody talking about his proposed tax cut? No. Plan? Nothing. Anything that he's proposed either has not been even ignored or in some cases, um, it's not going anywhere. And you've had the head of the state Senate um, saying that he's contemplating not even forwarding any bills to the governor's desk uh, from the Senate once it, when, if, if there's stuff that started in the House ended up in the Senate. So in fact, the governor doesn't have much to do other than appear to supportive groups 
because his his agenda, and frankly, I, th- I think there's no question that his dreams of someday being in the White House or close to it, that's all gone. And that, that prompts me to bring up something else that I think we need to discuss as as journalists. So I when I was moving into my new house over the last couple of days, I saw on Twitter a video of several Capitol reporter journalists chasing the governor down to ask him basic questions about whether he was going to stay in office. It was Jack Suntrip of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and Allison Kite of the Kansas City Star. Can you answer at least some of our questions, Governor? Why won't you? Governor, are you planning to step down? And the governor basically ignored them as he has... Uh, during other similar situations. Even before. Even even before. But it brings up the the uncomfortable reality that since he was indicted in February, I don't think he's answered a single question from reporters. No. Which I think is unprecedented in the relationship between the press and the Missouri governor. Now, I've seen some of the governor's defenders saying, well, you know, mainstream media is a relic. The governor can get his message out, you know, through Facebook or through supportive media. You, you can make that argument. But I, I've said this before, and I said this bef- when before the scandal broke. If Matt Blunt and Jay Nixon could answer literally thousands of questions during their tenure, then there is no reason why Governor Greitens can't do the same thing. It is, I think, and I'm going to use very strong language here because I absolutely believe what I'm about to say, an affront to democracy that the governor of Missouri is not answering questions about how he's doing his job and also how he's able to get through this. Because I I use that term because elected leaders need to be held responsible and they need to answer for their actions. And right now he's not doing that. Getting the message out is not the same thing as you mentioned, being held accountable for yes, his actions. Exactly. Yes, you can go and put up a million videos on Facebook or sponsor a thousand ads on Twitter from with the, with the source of money is unknown. But it isn't the same thing as being accountable to people who are following it, who are asking the questions, you know, who benefits from you staying in, who benefits from you leaving. Um, you know, did you do what you are accused of doing? Why or why not following up? So, yes, his supporters are going to say mainstream media is a relic. There's other way of getting his message out. But getting your message out is propaganda. It's not being held accountable. Yeah, I think, in fact, even President Donald Trump, I mean, the last year or so, he does take questions. I mean, some people may, you know, he does. I mean, you know, he, he was with Angela Merkel, the um had a Germany today at a press conference, and he was being hammered on some stuff. Now, Trump may disagree with plus, a bunch plus of it. Plus, he also has, you have the daily White House briefings, which is the White House speaking right. but, but, for but, the but president. But there's also yeah. instances where there are gaggles of reporters around Trump, and they've asked some pretty uncomfortable questions to the president, mm-hmm. including related to the Stormy Daniels situation. And he's answered them. I don't know if he's answered them well. But he's answering questions. Yeah, he's I mean, taking questions. That, yeah. That's my point, is that, I mean, while it, I think it was difficult for him in the beginning, he did come around when people around him told him, you have to do this. And for whatever reason, uh, Governor Greitens, and and I don't have, I mean, I, I don't have anything personal for or against the governor, but you need to be answering questions. You need to be responding to reporters. 
even if it's to say I'm not going to answer that. I mean, I remember I've asked questions of Jay Nixon when he was governor, and sometimes he'd go, Joe, that's a stupid question, or Joe, this is a governmental event, that's a political question, uh, talk to me when I'm outside, uh, then I'll answer that. Uh, Matt Blunt, I mean, even when Matt Blunt was being embattled in the scandal over um, emails, what, emails, uh, which <laughs> reminiscent something later, I collared him and Clayton at some event, and I asked him in front of everybody, you know, the questions about it, pointed questions. He answered every one. I remember being in Michigan, and this is several years ago uh, when I was covering the state house there. A fellow reporter and I were just kind of chilling out in our um, little newsroom that was there. And it happened to be positioned where you could see if the governor was pulling into her parking spot. And unexpectedly, we see the car pull up and we're like, oh, hey, that's the governor. We both grab our recorders. We're walking through the halls of the Michigan Capitol. This is not a planned press event. This is nothing more than just us taking the opportunity. Her security's not pushing us away. No, you know, none of that is happening. She's answering the questions that we are throwing out to her. This was uh, Governor Granholm, Governor Jennifer yeah. Granholm. Yeah. And I know I came off strong just now, but but I absolutely believe that there has to be interplay between reporters and high elected officials like governors who are making decisions that affect millions of people. You can't just say something in a Facebook post without reporters being able to ask you why you're doing it, asking of, of, of certain things that may not seem at least logically coherent. I'm not saying that's happened with the governor uh, currently, but it certainly has happened with politicians before. And I, I, I would agree with Joe. I don't have any personal animosity toward the governor. In fact, the governor has probably given me more ability to talk to him than most reporters. I've gotten to interview him three or four times, and I'm legitimately grateful for those opportunities. What I am not going to stand for anymore, and reporters should not stand for, is his complete lack of availability to reporters to ask him questions. I, I spoke out against that in 2017 when he was doing it. I'm going to speak out even strongly, more strongly now, when there's a question about whether he's going to be in office anymore. Well, I mean, we are a democracy. I mean, this, I mean, reporters being muzzled, jailed, and worse is what happens in some other countries. It does not happen here. And, and, it, and it should not happen here. And refusing to answer questions may seem mild when you compare to all that. But, but that's sort of the first step. That's the first step in the public not hearing what their people that they elected, what their responses are, and not being held accountable. Because the average person, you know, the grocery checker or the teacher or uh, the guy who's overseeing the forklift, they don't have time for that. They're expecting us as reporters to ask the questions that they want to know the answers to because they did go in the voting booth and they did vote for or against this person. And I think that that is I, I think you've got some public officials who don't get that. Yeah. I mean, it's not entitlement. You're not entitled to that office. You're not entitled to act like this is your office. You are occupying this office because people put you there, and they put you there for a set period of time, and they put you there because of things you promised that you would do and not, and not do. One thing I do want to bring up is, is kind of the latest on the whole Mission Continues thing, because for me, um, I was always more interested in that and some of the campaign finance stuff. 
than the basement stuff. Although the stuff in the basement has apparently propelled more interest and more involvement in this other stuff that's been swirling around the governor for two years. And uh, the bottom line is that, A, uh, a judge ruled today or this late this week that um, the governor's staff, I mean, the governor's lawyers cannot prevent Attorney General Josh Hawley from providing information to other prosecutors about um, behavior or lack of that they believe is unlawful. In this case, this has to do with with the mission continues. Uh, now, the latest thing is that Holly's staff is alleging that the governor knowingly uh, violated state campaign finance laws by using the mission continues donor list. And he, I, thought, he, I thought it was more, according to the Kansas City Star report I saw, it was that he, he filed false campaign finance reports well, related well, to it. Well, in effect, that's what it is, because he was filing... Ill- false campaign finance reports for over a year. I mean, when he signed this court, signed this uh, uh, agreement, consent order order in April of 2017, they basically acknowledged that and they paid a fine for it. Not much, but they did pay a fine because they admitted that, yeah, he'd been getting all this stuff for some time. So basically what Holly's doing is saying, well, okay, you did sign that order, but still that doesn't negate the fact that you filed all these um, false campaign finance reports. Now, it's not a felony. It's a misdemeanor, if I'm, I, if I, I, if I'm correct. It is. It is. I think that, again, raises the question, though, about as was raised when Hawley turned over the information to Circuit Attorney Gardner that led to the second felony charge filed uh, about a week ago now yeah. um, is – that that's a timing question again. Like he signed that consent order back in what sixteen, seventeen, something like that. It was April twenty seventeen, and four it, months. It would after have he... to be pretty obvious, I would think, that if there was evidence previously that he had this list in or acquired this list in a less than whatever fashion, legal fashion. That that misdemeanor could have been charged or the evidence could have been forwarded to the Cole County prosecutor again a long time before. Oh, yeah. A year ago. A year ago. It could have been it it could have been a a year ago because that's when they signed that consent order admitting it. I mean, because we we need to emphasize the governor is late as right before the election in November 2016 was denying um the allegations, some of which had been first been reported by the Associated Press, denying that he obtained the uh, donor list to use to then solicit campaign donations. Six months later, they signed this order that says, yeah, we did. But, but, but in that order, it dances around the, the fact of who did it, who got the list or who actually ordered getting the list. Right. So let's shift into the governor's political future. What I'm talking about is whether he is going to finish out his term and whether he may face impeachment. So this is a clip now from House Speaker Todd Richardson, Republican for Poplar Bluff, who we've heard a lot on on this on this podcast. He is talking with reporters about whether there are enough signatures to call the legislature into special session to con- possibly consider impeachment. Yeah, we've made significant progress again this week, and uh, we've begun the discussions with the minority party to get uh, their members' signatures. Uh, so that process is is on track and moving forward. How many has the uh, 
Okay. I'll say a significant number. I haven't looked at the, the, the list today, but we're well over a majority of the, the, the Republicans, and I anticipate that we'll have well over a majority of the Democrats. So this comes about as uh, our colleague uh, Marshall Griffin did a story about a few Republicans who are not really ready to call for the governor's impeachment. And that includes State Representative Diane Franklin, a Republican from the Lake of the Ozarks area. I guess there's maybe a rural and city divide on a lot of issues. And, you know, this is one of them. The folks that I represent and as I'm out and about in the rural area, that's how they feel about it. So you hear that. And I also read a Post-Dispatch article about the governor speaking in Texas County and getting a pretty good reception there. I think more than a pretty good reception, a a really good reception. Um, I'm not really sure I necessarily wholly endorse the idea that rural Missourians are are okay with this and and urban Missourians aren't. But I, I, I will say it may not be out of the question that since the governor's majority of support in 2016 was in outstate Missouri, and they voted for him in pretty substantial margins, there may be decent pockets of support that uh, the representative is talking about. I think there's a distinction, too, here between rural and urban politicians and rural and urban residents and voters. Now, whether you know, the rural voters are saying, I'm okay with this, and it's the urban voters saying, no, I'm not okay with this on sort of a moral, visceral level. I think there is something to the point that while politicians may be united on the idea that he has to go just for the benefit of the party and for benefit of kind of going forward, that there may be people who are just like, who cares? It's, you know, politicians trying to, you know, throw mud at him or liberal prosecutors up in St. Louis who are trying to throw mud at him. So I don't necessarily know and I obviously didn't do this interview with the with the um, the uh, state representative who was just speaking but I don't think that she's that off base with the idea that you know the like voters don't care or find this weird and there may be some I, up in this area who who don't find it weird either who, or well, who don't care as much well I would be shocked and I'm from rural Indiana originally I would be shocked if somebody was interviewing uh, rural voters, that they weren't appalled by the activities in the basement. I mean, I'm, I, I'm just saying that kind of behavior, as far as conservative, well, conservatives. Period. Not just Republicans, but conservatives. Period. Is not something that they're comfortable with, especially when this guy was campaigning as a family man, has a devoted husband, as a do- devoted father. Now, many of them may have voted for him because of that ad where he's blowing up stuff with the um, um, automatic weapons, or semi-automatic weapons. But the fact is, I think that for many voters who, particularly those who side with Republicans, the social behavior, the personal behavior is something key to them. I mean, that... But they voted for Trump. Well, because, okay, two things. A, they couldn't stand Hillary Clinton, and I'm not saying that it was right or wrong for various reasons, and I don't want to get in bores with all that, but they voted for Trump, I would predict, largely because of his promise to vote the kind of judges that they want. Mm -hmm. And for many social conservatives, getting a more conservative judicial branch is crucial. And there's also the element, too, that I wonder if 
while yes, they are somewhat appalled by, you know, personal sexual activity and see it as a moral failing, that they don't necessarily see it as something that would elevate to the level of a crime in that he asked his wife and had a conversation with Sheena about forgiveness in this relationship. And even if they are sort of personally appalled by it, do they think it rises to the level of a crime or something that he should be driven out of office for? I wonder if there's a distinction between sort of the moral and criminal realm in this case. Yeah, but there's many, many of these people, if, if they were around in 1996 and 98, many of them were trying to drive uh, Bill Clinton then out of President office. Bill Clinton out of office because of that, too. And frankly, because the only thing that he was actually accused of was of lying about the fact that he had had uh, a relationship with this intern, Monica Lewinsky. The relationship itself, technically, was not illegal. Immoral? Yeah. Illegal? No. But what got him in legal trouble was that he lied about it. Well, let's not lose sight of something else that was in the House report, is that the woman contended that she was coerced into doing some of the stuff in the basement. And that some of the sexual activity that occurred may not have been consensual. I think that that has to be emphasized here that that's the reason that House report was so startling. Governor has firmly and strongly denied that anything was was not consensual. I want to make that clear. But a lot of legislators read that report and believed the woman's account. Well, and one of the backdrops, and this is something you've brought up, Jason, early on is that we're talking about a case where in the wings is a lieutenant governor who's a Republican and a rural Republican. Yes. So it's not like we've got a lieutenant governor who's a Democrat. Because many of the... Le- or ran as a ticket with Greitens and is therefore going to be more of a loyalist to him. Correct, correct. Because in Missouri, the lieutenant governor and the governors run separately. So you've got many lawmakers, as far as Republicans anyway, who th- that... I mean, the issue of, well, if Greitens is out, what happens? That's not of a concern to them. Right. So then they so they can focus more on this issue, how their voters and, and their supporters view what's happening with Greitens. And some of this, as I've said before, is colored by the fact that he hasn't made friends since he's been in Jefferson City for the last year and a half. And he's actually treated many fellow Republicans with disdain run ads against them, um, has not um, reached any sort of compromises on certain issues. The um, whole educa- Board of Education fracas was is exhibit number one of that. So, I mean, I'm just putting that as a backdrop, too, because Jason brought this up weeks ago, and that's still the case. Final thoughts for this week. Just if you could sum up this week succinctly, how would you do it, Joe? Uh, stalemate. Nine-dimensional chess. There are no heroes in this entire situation. On that cheery note, I want to thank thank you both for for doing this as usual. We'll probably be back next week (laughs) for part nine of of Bodie McBoatface, the podcast. Uh, All of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. Follow Rachel on Twitter at... R. Lipman, two Ps, two Ns.